I invite you to hear what our scripture says to us today um, about our heavenly Father. See what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. You are my sons and daughters. This day I have chosen you, and as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. You know, through the love of spiritual earthly parents, God gives us a glimpse of his everlasting love and the guidance and the wisdom that we, uh, that we get from spiritual earthly parents uh, teaches us a lot about eternal life and about God. And following their example, we become more like Jesus, uh, for he grows his heart in each of us and teaches us uh, what we're, how we're to live and to be and to do in this life. So God, uh, help us to... Uh, to always be prepared to be part of that nurturing community uh, in the life of the families in this congregation. Let me, uh, let's pray together, shall we? God of majesty and power, you have given us knowledge of yourself and your will in the words of scripture. However, we confess that so often we ignore your clear teaching about what we should believe and do and hope for, and instead we follow our own impulses and our own dreams. God, forgive us, we pray, and open our minds and our hearts once more to your truth so that we may draw closer to you and to your plan and purpose for our lives and your kingdom. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a teaching series this summer called Changed, and we're looking at some of the New Testament stories uh, that tell us about people who met Jesus and their lives were radically changed. However, however the, these are not just stories from a bygone era. Even today, when a person truly encounters Jesus Christ, they, their life is radically changed. And some of you know that uh, because you're different today since you committed your life to Jesus Christ. And our story today is a play, really, in five acts. And it's a story about a man named Simon and the name of the play. Guess who came to dinner? We'll get to all that. Um, in a few moments, but pray with me, will you? Holy God, whose presence is known and celebrated in all the earth by singing and by praying and by clapping and even by dancing, we bow before you in this time together to thank you for your love and to, to confess our complete dependence upon you. There is nothing in this life that we can trust like we can trust you. And so we come together to praise you for your faithfulness to us, for the sense of joy and completeness we feel when we are restored to your fellowship and presence. So receive us today with uh, whatever we have brought with us, uh, who we are, and what we've made of our lives, and help us to be renewed in this service as we recommit ourselves to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Our text today from Luke's Gospel is one of the great short stories of the Bible. And I'm sure a Hollywood producer could turn this into a terrific one-hour drama for television, calling it Guess Who Came to Dinner. It helps to have a sense of humor when you read this story, but it also helps to have some background information. The first thing that we need to know is that this story takes place at a formal dinner party in ancient Palestine. That's important because in those days, formal dinner parties often took place in an open courtyard. They were public events in that the neighbors felt free to come into the courtyard to observe the dinner party 
as it took place. They weren't considered guests, they, but they weren't intruders either. They were self-invited observers. The second bit of information is that it was customary for the host to greet each of their invited guests with three things, a kiss of welcome, water for their feet, and oil to anoint their head. So this story is really a drama in five acts, so I invite you to go with me today to El Shaddai Dinner Theater in ancient Hebron for the premier performance of Guess Who Came to Dinner. Just as we find our seats, the curtain rises on act one, playing it safe. As we gaze at the stage, we see the table is set in the middle of the courtyard It is U-shaped with couches arranged so that the guests will recline with their legs facing outward. And immediately we are introduced to the man who will be the central character. He is Simon, the Pharisee. (laughs) What a surprise. This man has invited Jesus to come to his house for supper. It's a surprise because most of the time Jesus didn't get along very well with the religious elite, the Pharisees. But Simon was different. He was a Pharisee, but not a very good one. He wasn't deeply involved in anything. He was broad-minded enough to invite this upstart young rabbi from Nazareth to dinner. So uh, no doubt he reasoned that it would do no harm. After all, it takes all kinds of people to make a world, and Simon liked to be around influential people. It made him feel good to rub shoulders with the the movers and the shakers of society. Not that he was committed to Jesus or his mission, not at all, this was a social invitation, that's all. He didn't necessarily agree with all the harsh talk that he had heard from Jesus, like robbing of widows' houses and whitewashed tombs and all that extreme stuff was more than he could take. So this was a casual deal, uh, deal, the kind where, you know, you keep the good china locked up. Low key, no big deal. That way he wouldn't risk offending his more orthodox friends. So what words would we use to describe Simon? Maybe words like urbane, polished, smooth, adaptable. He's a curious bystander in the game of life. He is diplomatic to a fault and He likes to play it close to the vest. Above all, Simon is no fanatic. He is a man of the world. He thinks of himself as a man who never gets backed into a corner. Simon would fit well in many offices in our culture today, maybe even the halls of Congress, maybe even in the church. He would do well in Rome or New York or Chicago. He is a classic middle-of-the-road kind of guy. So it happens that this day, Jesus has come to his home, the home of a Pharisee, for dinner. And all is going well as the curtain falls on Act 1. Act 2, the gate crasher. As the curtain rises from stage left, an unidentified woman enters and she walks around the table and she stops at the sofa where Jesus is reclining. And the Bible is very discreet in calling her an immoral woman, a woman who was a sinner. This woman is a prostitute. She made her living by selling her body. She was a professional, and we have no reason to doubt she wasn't good at what she did. 
And the shock is that she would come to the house of a religious leader, a Pharisee in ordinary times, Simon and this woman would never meet. He would not go near a woman like her. She would not go near a man like him. They are from opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet, strangely, on this day, they are thrown together for the same purpose. They both want to meet Jesus. The center of attention now becomes this woman of the street. I don't know much about her profession, but I'm guessing that this woman was pretty good judge of men. She sees them as they are. She's heard every promise. She knows every come on. She's heard every cover-up. She's seen and heard it all. She knew Jesus was not like all the other men. She was not, he was not going to use her and throw her away. She heard in his words a promise that she could come out of this ugly, empty life that she was living. And so Simon watches, and he, unbelievingly, as this woman does something strange, she intends to anoint Jesus' feet with some expensive perfume that she has brought, but she begins to cry, and she can't stop crying. And as she cries, her tears fall on Jesus' feet. She dries his feet with her hair, and then she smothers his feet with kisses, and she finally anoints his feet with that perfume. If this seems a little odd, let me remind you of her background. She is used to being with men. She's not ashamed to show her emotions. She reacts to Jesus exactly as a woman with her background might react. It's the only way she knows. She, how would we describe her? We would perhaps use words like generous or impulsive, affectionate, demonstrative, emotional, passionate, uninhibited. Why is she weeping? Because she loves Jesus, and she isn't afraid to show it. She stands to honor his greatness. She weeps overwhelmed with sorrow because of her past. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, which was a sign of deep humility. She kisses his feet, which was a gesture of affection and respect. And she anoints his feet in gratitude for what he has done for her. As Act 2 comes to a close, the scene shifts back to Simon, who's silently watching uh, this shocking, emotional scene. He never has seen anything like this. It goes against all of his conservative instincts. He is deeply offended by what this woman has done. A fallen woman caresses Jesus and it bothered him. He would never have let a woman like this touch him. The whole thing in his mind was disgusting, it's revolting, it's dirty. Simon says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. As the curtain falls, Simon ponders what he's just seen. Act three, an after dinner tale. Jesus knew exactly what Simon was thinking, and Luke says in verse 40 that Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. So Jesus told him a little story. It went like this. Once there were two men who owed money to the moneylender, and one man owed 5,000, the other owed 50,000. Neither one had any money, so the lender out of the goodness of his heart, canceled the debts. Nice, simple story. Then Jesus asks Simon the million-dollar question, verse 42. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? 
and Simon smells a trap. So he's a little cautious in his answer. He says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, that's right, Simon. What does it mean? In Simon's eyes, the woman of the street was like the man who owed $50,000. Her debt to God was enormous because in Simon's eyes, she was an enormous sinner. Compared to her, Simon's debt seemed to him like maybe five bucks. But that's not the point. If you can't pay a debt, it doesn't matter how much you owe, does it? If you're broke, you're broken. In that sense, there's no difference between owing a little or owing a lot, especially if you don't have any money. And the truth slowly begins to seep in. Simon, we're all in debt to God. Some owe more, some owe less. But none of us can even pay a penny of what we do owe. And here is the gospel message in a nutshell in this story. God is willing to forgive all debtors equally, the people who owe a lot and the people who owe a little. Simon is now at center stage and he's beginning to sweat a little. What Jesus means is becoming painfully clear to him. Simon, there is fundamentally no difference between you and the prostitute. And as the message sinks in, the curtain falls on Act 3. Act four, risky business. As the curtain rises, Jesus turns to the woman for the first time, but he does not speak to her. Simon, uh, he says, uh, he, look at this woman kneeling here. And what Jesus means is, Simon, do you know why she's doing these things? And Simon thinks about it. He thought he did, but he really doesn't. And then Jesus systematically exposes the shabby treatment that he has received, beginning in verse 44. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. In other words, Simon, you kept me at arm's length. But she has not been ashamed of me. You didn't even bother to show me minimal courtesy, but she has lavished her love on me. You know religion. You know the temple. You know the sacrifices. You know the law. You've got it all down pat. But, and she knows none of that. But you have missed the point, and she got it. What was Simon's problem? He thought he was better than this woman. Simon said, she's a sinner. Jesus said, no, she was a sinner, but God has changed her life. Simon's problem was that he saw her as she was, not as she is. He thought he saw her, but he really didn't. For years, he knew her only one way, and now she's clean, and he couldn't make sense of that. And that leads me to another truth. A person who is never deeply committed to anything cannot understand somebody who has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Just before the curtain falls, Jesus speaks again in verse 47. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has been forgiven little shows only a little love. Jesus is not saying, the worse you are, the more you're forgiven. 
He is saying the greater you sense your own need of forgiveness, the greater will be your love when you are forgiven. You will have gratitude and love in exact proportion with your own sense of sinfulness. Now, if you think you have been greatly forgiven, you will be greatly in love with God. And if you think you have only been forgiven a little, you won't have much love for God either. Jesus is rather is boring in on Simon, isn't he? he start, Simon is starting to fidget. He doesn't like getting backed into a corner. So our little drama is almost over. There's only one act to, that remains. Act five, the payoff. As the curtain rises, Jesus speaks to the woman for the very first time, and he says just three things to her. Your sins are forgiven. That takes care of her past. Your faith has made, your faith has saved you. That takes care of her present. And go in peace. That takes care of her future. That's all he says to her. He never says, hey, stop going out and selling your body. He doesn't have to. She has been set free from that life. And what about Simon? He got more in this dinner party than he ever bargained for, more than he wanted. He planned a casual affair, but it kind of blew up in his face. So as the curtain falls for the last time, we see Simon staring at Jesus with both a look of fear and a look of amazement. The epilogue, you and me and Simon. As we walk out of El Shaddai Dinner Theater, we wonder just who is this little story all about? Is it about Simon? Is it about the woman? Is it about Jesus? Simon, the man who would not commit himself to anything, the woman who risked everything to see Jesus, or Jesus, the one who welcomed her and would have welcomed Simon as well. See, Simon's problem was not that he couldn't see the woman. It, was, it wasn't that he couldn't see Jesus. Simon's big problem was that he couldn't see himself. Simon said, I don't know him anything. And so he risked nothing. The woman said, I owe him everything, and so she risked everything. It's strange, isn't it, that the worst sinners often make the best saints. Why? Because flagrant sinners are more likely to discover that they really are sinners. Here is the abiding truth of this story. Our love for the Lord is directly related to our estimate of how greatly we have sinned and how much God has forgiven us. It's not about how much we sin, but how deeply we feel that sin that matters. In truth, we're all more like the woman. So guilty, we could never pay the debt that we owe. Now we've been forgiven more than our minds can comprehend. But in truth, there's a little bit of Simon in all of us. We secretly think that we're better than we are. So we hold back and we play it safe and we never get radical in our commitment to Jesus Christ. Frankly, that's why we have a hard time understanding people who do. And frankly, that's why churches are struggling the way they are. Simon represents so many people who have a hard time expressing their feelings. They keep it all inside because it's safer that way. Back in uh, 
February of 1991, Time Magazine carried an interview with Robert McNamara. Some of you may remember, he was uh, Secretary of Defense under Presidents Kennedy and then Johnson. And at the end of the interview, the writer asked him, who is the real Robert McNamara? And his answer, very few people know. Question from the writer, who knows? Answer, well, Marge knew, my wife knew. Question, who else? President Johnson? Answer, no, I don't think so. No, people don't know the real me. People don't know. Question, your kids? Answer, people don't know, and probably not my kids either. Let me tell you, that's a weakness. If you're not going to be known emotionally to people, it means you haven't communicated fully to those people. I know it's a weakness of mine, but I'm not about to change now. See, Simon would understand that exactly. It's a weakness, but I'm not about to change. But if love is ever going to enter our life, we're going to have to open our heart and show people how we really feel. And it's risky and it's dangerous, and it, but it's the only way. And if we stay like Simon, we'll be safe, but love may forever pass us by. I think nobody said it better than C.S. Lewis. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly even be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is in hell. Because love is risky business. We all have to take a chance sometime, don't we? If we're going to say, I love you, we're going to have to open our heart and let people see how we really feel. And that can be scary. Some, somewhere I ran across this statement that could have been written about our story today from Luke's Gospel. I feel that God would sooner we did wrong in loving than never love for fear that we should do wrong. As strange as it may seem, this story presents us with a clear choice. Either we can be like Simon or we can be like the woman from the city. Now think about that. By long years of religious training, many of us have, most of us maybe, even feel much more comfortable being like Simon. Luke included this story in his gospel so that we would be challenged to become more like the repentant sinner. The fact that we feel uncomfortable with that says a lot more about us than it does about the Bible. In closing, let me share with you, I ran across a poem that talks about the risky step of saying, I love you. And here's what it says. Turn, O Lord, my fears around. Let them become a positive force for good in my life. Until I fear not that I might fail, but fear rather that I might never dare to discover my potential. Fear not that I might be hurt, but fear rather 
that I might never experience growing pains. Fear not that I might live and lose, but rather that I might never love at all. Great prayer. Either we live in our fears, captive to the past or, and what might happen in the future, or we turn them around and by faith we go forward with God. We can choose to be like Simon and play it safe, but in the end we'll be sorry. Or we can be like the woman who smothered Jesus' feet with kisses, and it's risky, and it's daring, and the people who see us may not always understand, but at least we'll know that we really love the Lord we serve. Let's pray. Forgiving God, too often we take your forgiveness for granted. Too often we cling to our sin, believing that it is our right to harbor resentments and hatreds, and we just pray today that you would be merciful to us and show us the depth of healing that is offered when you forgive us for the sake of the one who recognized total surrender to forgiveness and offered it willingly, even Jesus Christ, our healer and our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.